Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Here's the Thing is produced by WNYC Radio in association with Stony Brook Southampton Graduate Arts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influence their work. The best story Esquire magazine ever published is titled, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. That's according to Esquire itself, back in 2003, selecting from its 70-year archive, which includes writers like Raymond Carver, Ernest Hemingway, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Gay Talese wrote Frank Sinatra Has a Cold and many more articles along with several books. He sticks to the facts and tells layered, compelling stories about the famous, the not-so-famous, and the infamous, like mafia legend Bill Bonanno. Talese spends an unconventionally long time with his subjects. It pays off with a depth and complexity hard to find in journalism today. For Gay Talese, achieving this requires both instinct and skill. I think to a degree, a kind of discipline can be taught about writing, how a sentence should be clear. You could certainly have some tutoring with regard to that. But I think writing and writers are of a breed that are, in the case of nonfiction writers, driven by curiosity. In the case of fiction writers, playwrights, short story writers, essayists, then creativity is involved. I'm in the category of nonfiction, and my way of working is to first to indulge my curiosity. I'm propelled by the notion of how do other people get through the day and night, and what are they like, and how are they different from me? I'm mm-hmm. always measuring myself. Whether I'm interviewing Frank Sinatra, Joe DiMaggio, or some pigeon feeder on Lexington Avenue. Joe Bonanno. Yeah, Joe Bonanno. I have a variety of, of subjects. I'm not an expert in anything. I, my range is, is, is very far-reaching. Not always profound, but I'm, my curiosity is profound. It's far-reaching for sure. You started working at the Times in 53. I was a copy boy. I, I was born near Atlantic City. My father was an Italian-born tailor. And my mother was a Brooklyn-born Italian who met this man, this tailor. And they settled there, and I was born in 1932. But I couldn't get into college because my grades were terrible. I was pretty good in high school journalism, but I wasn't good at anything else, including English. But my father was making suits for a man from Alabama, a doctor in our town, and he suggested I go to the University of Alabama, one place that welcomed me because of the doctor's influence with the dean of admission. And I had the best four years of my life. In, in Alabama from 49 to 53, not was, a good football it, team. What was it like to be there? What it was like, the kid well, from for New me, Jersey in Alabama, it was, it was, was like being another immigrant. My father was an immigrant, and I was an immigrant in a sense. <laughs> Later on, when I got a job in the New York Times, I went down to Alabama to cover the Civil Rights March, the Selma March of 1965, Martin Luther King's famous march. And it was interesting being an Italian-born journalist, born in New Jersey, but went to school in Alabama and goes back as a reporter for the Times to help cover this, the 17-day march to Montgomery from Selma. So I saw part of a history from different perspectives. Now, you said that you are a nonfiction writer. That's true. And yet you were identified with a certain stripe of nonfiction, a, a contemporary nonfiction that people have called different names, new journalism and so forth, you, Wolf, 
uh, Capote in yeah. some of his novel John writing. Gideon. Yeah. Well, how do you define that? How do you well, define the what, difference what if, between what you do and what, what your predecessors do? What doing? I do and what I always have been influenced by are fiction writers. As a boy, I didn't grow up in a home with a lot of books. You can imagine as an immigrant family, a tailor, and a, my mother sold dresses. So I wasn't reared in the home of Virginia Woolf. I was reared in the home of merchants. Uh, it was a good training for a writer to be or a reporter to be because if you're a store person, my family had a store. And from the earliest age, I was taught good manners. You must be courteous to the customer. Even though I, I didn't have a literary background, I did read some books, not many, but some when I went to Alabama. I read Faulkner. I never heard of Faulkner until I went to Alabama. And I also started reading, when I came to be a copy boy, I started reading The New Yorker. And I read short stories by Erwin Shaw, John Cheever, St. Clair McKellaway was a nonfiction writer, A.J. Liebman was a nonfiction writer, and Joe Mitchell was a nonfiction writer. And I read all these high-level writers, particularly drawn to the fiction of John O'Hara and Erwin Shaw, who's not known now, but he's a beautiful writer. And he wrote great short stories, uh, the 80-yard run about a college football player who's in love with a young beautiful blonde, and it tells the story Erwin Shaw does. He didn't quite make it in the prose. He didn't make it, but he came to New York with his wife who got to be a fashion editor at one of the better magazines and more successful the older she got. And he was less successful the older he got. Like many athletes, their life is in their 20s, and after that, it's a very much a question whether they have a future, have any life at all. I thought that story was so real, and yet it was fiction. My first job as a reporter was in the sports department, so when I would meet Frank— So at the times you started in the sports department. I did. My first job as I got on the staff, which was 1956, was in the sports department. And I met people like Frank Gifford. And, but, you know, the New York Giants were a good team in those days. I wanted to be a practitioner of nonfiction, meaning you cannot make it up. You cannot use your imagination. You cannot fake the facts. You have to write verifiably. Whatever you write, real names, real facts, so the reader can check you out. On the other hand, I wanted to be a storyteller. So if you read— my stories about maybe a, pa- a football player or Floyd Patterson. A, a or Joe Lewis. Guy, or Joe Lewis that I knew or Muhammad Ali. And all these stories begin with scenes. And the scene setting, yeah. I've learned from people like F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great story that Fitzgerald wrote, as, every bit as good as, as Great Gatsby, is called Winter Dreams. I fell in love with that story. I fell in love with that girl that the caddy fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring to my stories, my little magazine pieces or my books later on, what the short story writers and the novelists brought to their dramatic rendering mm-hmm. out of their imagination. And so I used my imagination, such as it was, to sort of penetrate the personalities, the private lives, if I need be, of other people. I had tremendous respect for people that I wrote about, starting to get it as a boy in the store, where you respect the customer, and you mind your manners, and you and you behave properly, and your trust Courtesy. means something. Courtesy. That's something journalists don't have. They don't now, have a well, We're going to get to that, how it's changed. But uh, before you write books, or before you write the book about the Times, and you're on the sports desk. Give us an example of, of one of the first sports figures you interacted with and what that was like. I mean, someone that the you first were... one I interacted with in a what I call a very deep way was the prize fighter Floyd Patterson, who came up in the late 1950s. He was articulate. Many great athletes are not articulate, but he was one. And more important, he was open to having other people inquire about his life. 
One of the first times I met him, he said, you know, I'm basically a coward. I just feel that boxing is the way I can make a living. I don't know what else I would. But in my heart, I'm filled with fear and fear of being humiliated. And then he told me that he didn't want to be spotted in public, particularly when he lost a fight. He had a fake mustache, fake wig, he had some clothing he wore. He would masquerade. He would be or try to be somebody else. And this went on for six, seven years. But, you know, getting to talk to people in moments when they are feeling humiliated and underachieving is very much something experienced by everybody, whether you're an actor, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a defeated candidate for office. Everybody has to know disappointment, a sense of rejection, sure. defeat. It was a different time in terms of protecting them, wasn't it? It was a different time in terms of you weren't well, there to pull the covers on these people. We live in such tabloid times now where writers, regardless of their... I mean, I even see, like, with, with publications like The Times itself, they can't help but have some kind of armchair reduction of you and, you know, some kind of psychoanalysis of you. They don't just write the facts. No, they don't. What was it like back then? You weren't there well, to pull the all, covers on people. I, 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 never, I never wrote about a person, and I've written about hundreds and hundreds of people, that I couldn't go to see again. I never had someone that wouldn't see me. In fact... My attitude was the story's never over. I could write about someone that's a performing athlete or performing actor and then 10 years later go back and see them again. I wrote about Peter O'Toole, my favorite person, in 1963, not long after he did Lawrence of Arabia. I kept in touch with him for the next 40 years. I believe that people, as long as they're alive, have more stories to tell. Just because you published an article in the New York Times or the New Yorker magazine doesn't mean that the story's over. It means your interest is over. But mine never abated. I was always curious and continue to be affiliated with people I wrote about because I was sharing a part of my life with them when I was young and they were young. And as I've gotten older and they've gotten older, I wonder how did it turn out? And I can see in some of the public figures because you know what's happened to them because they're occasionally still in print. But my curiosity is to write about them when their life is done. I mean, when I wrote about Joe DiMaggio, his career was done. I wrote about him in 1966. He had what was he like? Bitter? He was very suspicious. Uh, Cautious. Very suspicious. And, of course, being married to Monroe compounded that suspicion of the press. Well, being a celebrity is a perilous experience in a way. You never have your life that you can feel is your own life because it is so penetrated by the nosy noses and the aggressive and assaulting members of the media who could rip you up and ruin your life in a way that you can't make it up when these characterizations, false as they may be, are established in print. There's not a lot you can do to change it. You might outlive it to yeah, a there's degree. No there's no correction page on the oh. internet. The correction the next day on page three in a little paragraph at the bottom of the page is not going to amend things. It's not going to make up for the disturbance of your own character. Now, were you still writing for... You, you wrote Sinatra after you left the Times. Yes, I, I this wrote... This is when you were doing a lot of essays for Esquire. Well, that's right. I left the Times in 1965 after the Selma march that I told you about. And you wrote Kingdom and the Power when? Three years later. See, when I... After you left. Yeah, well, when I was on the Times, I saw these guys who worked for the paper as stories. I thought sometimes they were much more interesting than the stories they were writing about, about the outside. 
So when you were at the Times, what was the Times like then as well, opposed I, to what it's I like now? I saw these characters. One of them was an obituary writer. I thought, what an eccentric character. This guy was named Alden Whitman. And he was waiting for people to die. He was very interested in other people dying because that was his story. He kept alive. His and they have their obituaries written years in advance. That's it. And I felt so my first, when I quit the Times, I wanted to take these stories public. And the first thing I did for Esquire when I left the paper in 65 was to write a story called Mr. Bad News, which was this obituary guy, <laughs> all the women. The next thing I wanted to write about was a guy named Harrison Salisbury. He was a great correspondent. I remember him. He was the guy that during the Vietnam War, without permission, in fact, against the policies of this government, went in Hanoi and found out that American bombers were pitting hospitals, schools, against what Lyndon Johnson's administration was telling us in 1965. This was 66, the height of the North Vietnamese beginning to triumph in that war. And Salisbury penetrated that and wrote these stories and people hated him in this country. He's a communist, great man in my view. I wanted to write about him and I did write about him, but but first the editor said, oh, you have to write about Sinatra. I said, I don't want to write about Sinatra. This is the Esquire editor. Yeah. No, go do it. Go do it. So it's easy. Set up. Sinatra's press agent said, it's a cover story. You go out there and talk to you. Yeah. And he's doing this big NBC thing called Sinatra Man and His Music. It's all set up. So I went out there the Californian. I was supposed to see Sinatra the next Monday after I arrived. And I called the press agent, a guy named Jim Mahoney. He said, oh, Jim, I'm here at the Beverly Wilshire. When are we going to see Mr. Sinatra? I said, oh, I'm sorry. He's got a cold. Oh, well, okay. Well, maybe a few days. Yeah, check me. But by the way, he said, Frank is feeling pretty bad because that damn Cronkite on CBS, we understand he's doing something about Frank's alleged connection to mafia people. I said, I'm not doing that. Well, anyway, Sinatra's lawyer would like to see you and maybe come to an agreement that maybe you could submit the piece before we pump. I said, Jim, I can't do that. You can't. I couldn't do it on the Times. I can't do it on Esquire. I can't do it anywhere. Sinatra's call was a problem, but the real problem was they wanted to take the piece and do what they wanted. So I hung out there for six weeks. I never talked to him. You hung out there for six, six weeks? weeks? But what I was doing was talking to <clears throat> little people that worked with Sinatra. It might have been the woman who took care of his toupee, his former valet, his haberdasher on Rodeo Drive, a guy named Dick Carroll. Dick Carroll, he wasn't the guy that, uh, did, did that become Carroll and Company? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Carol. Beautiful anyway, clothes. I knew all these people. And they gave me wonderful stories. And finally, the press agency, are you still here? What are you doing? Frank is feeling. You wore little, them down. Maybe so, but it's a much better piece. So Frank Sinatra has a cold. Was done by talking to these people, but the reason I was so comfortable talking to minor characters is because I liked these secondary characters, and I get to know them as the You're ordinary people. Back in the people. tailor shop. And exactly, the tailor shop was a You're great in the training ground. Chit chat in the tailor chit-chat shop. Chit chat in the tailor shop. Right, You're fitting people for a suit. And you know, I felt comfortable with ordinary people. My parents are ordinary, are ordinary people. Of course. So that worked out. And you get the story, even though you don't get Sinatra. That's right. But you met him. You ran into I, him. I saw him. Where? Well, I saw him at <laughs> a few places. I saw him in a bar, and he got in a confrontation with some guy named Harlan Ellison, who, who was a shooting pool. Sinatra was just being a little bit irritated, and he was, and he was lonely. He was 50 years old. He had been dating Mia Farrow then, and she wasn't around. And, and he had this cold, and he was feeling lousy. And so I just caught that moment. I described it. Later on, I saw Sinatra at a prize fight. Actually, Muhammad Ali was fighting my friend Patterson. And I called Patterson. I got tickets to the fight because I knew Sinatra was going to be there. And, of course, he was there. 
But Sinatra later on was with Dean Martin and Joey Bishop and and a few others went to the gambling in the casino. I watched them gamble. Later on, they went to a show, and I just wrote a scene. In other words, I was observing Sinatra. I wasn't talking to him, but I was watching him, and he had such an aura of glamour and drama about him. He might have a bad mood and they're getting a fight with somebody, or he might be in a good mood and he's giving people free drinks. Very mercurial. A real magical man. And so you didn't... But a man haunted. Didn't you feel that some of these people you meet back then at the the apex of this business, they're haunted? At the root of it. It was different being famous back then. But if you're extraordinarily talented, that goes for now as in the era of Frank Sinatra's fame or before, you're living up to expectations that cannot be long met. If you are a great performer, it could be a musician, it could be an opera singer, it could be Renata... The Tabaldi, it could be Frank Sinatra. When you are at the height of your game and you have to continue to perform in that high level, that supreme level, you're under constant pressure. Stress. And the, and the stress of the critics who are not in love with your success anymore. They're tired of your success. They want to contribute to your destruction. It's very interesting that you said they're envy, tired of your success. They're tired of your success. And they are motivated by being destructive because they want to be affecting your life. And the only way they can do it is to target you, to sink your floating vessel. And when you're at the top of your game, you not only gain a lot more fans, but you gain a lot more enemies. I mean, to go on and on and on, so few can survive for so long when you're at the top. Gay Talese never met Sinatra, but after the singer died in 1998, he says he met Tina Sinatra, his daughter, and she told him she liked his article. Talese asked if her father had ever read it. He probably did, she said, but he'd never admit it. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like Debbie Reynolds. We discovered we have something in common. I'm Aries. I'm born April Fool's Day. I just Your had birthday my birthday. My, I just had my birthday. Aries is, is very stubborn, but very really good person. I mean, I don't think that there's a bad bone in the body other than our temper. Um, that I've, I, you're known for your temper. No, that's not true. But it's well, not no, true, right? Lie. That's just all a lie. It's just that if that's you... That's the press making up things, you know. Go to heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In the early 1980s, one book found its way onto almost every shelf in the country. Gay Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife explored the uncharted territory of the hidden sex lives of Americans. Ten years earlier, Talese wrote about another subject, previously underreported. His book Honor Thy Father dove deep into the powerful and very secretive Bonanno crime family. Talese got the famously press-averse Bill Bonanno to speak with such honesty and introspection that Time magazine labeled Talese the golden retriever of personalized journalism. His first conversation with Bill was years in the making. Well, I met him in my final year at the New York Times, but I told you it was 1965. 
One of the last stories, in addition to the Selma story, was the cover of the indictment of the Bonanno father and son in federal court in lower Manhattan. And I met him briefly through his lawyer. Bill Bonanno was my age. I knew his father was born in Sicily. My father was... Joe Bonanno was Yeah, Joe Bonanno was born in Sicily. My father was born in Calabria, close to Sicilians. So when I was a reporter, I went to Bill Bonanno during a recess in the, in the hearing in federal court. And I saw his lawyer named Albert Krieger. And I said, Mr. Krieger, this is your client, Mr. Bonanno, who's my age, incidentally. Someday I'd like to write about him. And Krieger said, no comment, no comment. I said, I'm not looking for a comment. I'm looking for a story. Said, but someday, it doesn't mean this year, next year, next sometime. Because sometime this guy is going to die, your client, Mr. Bill Bonanno. And Bill Bonanno's looking at me, saying nothing, half smiling. And I said, somebody's going to die. I hope it's not with a bullet. But if he dies, his obituary is going to come from information of the Justice Department. The, 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 the cops are going to write the story. And so no comment, no comment. I said, OK. I kept writing and calling him for the next year and a half. 67, Mr. Bonanno, uh, his lawyer, Albert Krieger, the younger Bonanno, Mr. Bonanno will have dinner with you as long as it's off the record. It's absolutely off the record. He took me to some Johnny Johnson's steakhouse near the UN, run by mafia guys. So the lawyer Krieger and Bill Bonanno and I, three of us, had dinner, had a steak, had a drink. And I said, what about your family? He said, well, they live at East Meadow, Long Island. And I said, I have two young daughters. You have daughters. Young, young. Why don't we have dinner sometime? So Bill Bonanno said, well, okay, you can come to my house. Bring your wife and bring To your, East Meadow. Yeah, East Meadow. And my wife <laughs> went to a convent school. She's a Manhattanville graduate, my wife is. And the wife of Bill Bonanno is also a convent-educated girl. So the two women, the, the Irish Nana Hearn, who married Gabe Talese, and our two daughters, Catherine and Pamela, went in my little TR3 sports car uh, way out to East Meadow. And there were these big Cadillacs in a parked outside of Bonanno's house. And he sees me pulling in with his car. He welcomes us. We had dinner. And we met the bodyguards and all that stuff. On the way out, he said, you know, it's dangerous driving that car with those children. He says, I, I said, oh, I like, we love the car. Next day, I get a call. He says, you know, I, I was thinking about your car. I have a Cadillac for you. Oh, no, I don't want it. But it's dangerous what you're doing. I said, listen, you, you live with your danger. I live with mine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but we became friends. It took me two years. And finally, in 1970, he said, I'm going to talk to you for the record, finally. And I went over there. He lived what do you there. think changed? He, he just grew to like I'll tell you what's going to change. He, he in 1970, you. he'd been indicted for credit card fraud. He, was, he took a stolen, one of his, somebody took a card, and he was running up a lot of bills. And they sent him four years to go to, to Terminal Island in California, where he was going to go. In fact, they sent him to jail. And his roommate was G. Gordon Liddy, was in a cell with Bill Bonanno. You know G. Gordon Liddy, who was in the Watergate story? The only guy that had any integrity and didn't rat on the president was G. Gordon Liddy. So he got along with Bill Bonanno very, very well. Uh, but, he understood Omerta. <laughs> yeah, he understood. So I became friendly with Ben. I lived in, he then was temporarily living in, outside of San Francisco place near San Jose, called California. And I met his wife and I hung around there for a whole year before he went to jail for four years. That's when I did the story. And the story is really, in a way, it indicated something of the Sopranos approach to the story. I was interested in family life, the wife, 
the children. And it was preordained he would go into that business because of his father or no? Yeah, it was. It was. It preordained. Was. And, and why not? Salzburger went into the business because it was a family business. Okay. Gates at least didn't become a tailor because it wasn't much of a business. If my father right. was Ralph Lauren, I might have worked at Ralph Lauren, right. you know, but I didn't. So I didn't become a so tailor. It's preordained be- that Bill Banana would follow his Absolutely. father. Absolutely. But when that book came out, I made a fortune. I sold it all over the world. I had a movie deal with CBS. I made about a million dollars and more to come. And I set up with my lawyer a trust fund, an education trust fund. And I had put my two daughters through college. And the four Badano kids, when I met them, were six, and seven, eight years old. I put them through college, my lawyer. Wow. And one of them became a doctor and none of them became gangsters. So we broke the mafia cycle. Wow. And, and, uh, and that was my big humanitarian achievement. Now, let's talk about your other humanitarian achievement, which in the several years I'd run into you in New York at events and I'd see you out there, I'd run into you at Elaine's, you know, every now and then, you know, you're so splendidly turned out and you're such a gentleman. And so I honestly look at the book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, and I think this is just another function of your curiosity. And do you sit down when you write a book like that and say, I'm going to start doing some research, and the research leads you down these different alleyways and byways, and you just keep going and saying, this is my job? Or well, did you stop along the way and say, I got to think about this? Well, I, let me tell you the way it started. First of all, I was reared as a Roman Catholic, and I, because of how old I am, I came out of the 1950s. I'm really a product of post-World War II Catholicism. I was taught in my little town with a very few Catholics, some Irish, a little parish. I was an older boy. I was one of the few Italians in that parish. We had a strict code of behaviors. You shouldn't masturbate. You shouldn't read filthy literature. You go to mass and you had the Catholic index. I was warned not to read this, not to look at this, evil thoughts, all that. When I come of age after college and go to become a copy boy, the whole policy with regard to morality was changing. And in the 1960s, the period of the Vietnam War, the hippies, the, 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 sexual music, revolution. the sexual revolution. And so I was married at the time and I had these two daughters. And one night my wife and I went to P.J. Clark's, it was 11 o'clock, walking up Lexington Avenue. We live in the East 60s. And I saw this sign on, on a building on 58th and Lexington across from Bloomingdale's. It said, live nude models. I couldn't believe the sign. And I said to Nan. By Bloomingdale's. Across from Bloomingdale's, other right. side of the street. Hard to believe they have yeah, that yeah. there. Live nude models. Yeah. I said, let's go and check it out. She said, no, you go, you go. I'm seeing you at home. I go up there, and they're closing this. And the guy says, what is this live nude model? She says, just... So when your wife said, you go, you go, you go, she didn't care. No, she said, I don't want to go up. She did care, but she didn't care. She right. knew that I was a very curious guy. Right. I'm essentially a reporter who liked to indulge my curiosity. Yeah, you're open for anything. Absolutely true. And the guy says, it's a massage parlor. It's closed. Come back tomorrow. Next day, I went back. I was amazed. A massage parlor, what's that? They gave you a book. There were five or six photographs of different women, room one, room two, room three, one, four, in each. And he says, 30 bucks for a massage. I says, okay. I picked somebody and they go to room three and some young woman, articulate woman comes in with a Southern accent. She says, take your clothes off. And I said, this is a massage you're giving me? Yes, yes, take your clothes off. Oh, they took the clothes off. She took her top off, but she was wearing a little mini skirt. And I said, uh, you have a southern accent. Yes. Where are you from? Alabama. She's, I, I, went, to, I went to the University of Alabama. She could not care less. She says, hurry up. I, I was hoping all... you were going to say you knew her. Yeah, you know, what a place you'd be reunited all those and years later. And you know later. what it was? What they do is masturbate you. Sure. I think, what incredible. To, to masturbate you for $30. 
And I was listening while being masturbated and enjoying it. I was also had my ear I'm wondering, who is this girl? She told me she was working at, going to school at Hunter in the daytime and working the massage parlor in the latter afternoons. She was a college-educated person. I later on found out that all were college girls in this massage parlor. Sure. I was amazed. The college girls— I shot a movie in a bar in New Orleans, and all the strippers in the bar, we rented a bar, and they hired these women that were real strippers. And I talked to this one girl. You know, they say, cut, and she put the bathrobe on, and she'd sit down and smoke a cigarette. I said, what do you do? She said, I'm going to Tulane. And they were all in college. Incredible, yeah. College and that was true. So I thought to myself— while enjoying the process and being massaged to orgasm, no doubt, I'm participating fully. At the second time, my second head is, there's a story here. Who is this girl? Who are these women? This is 1973, 74, 75. So different from the altar boy or the young journalist that I was in 1954, 55. People my age, I was then in my 30s, are coming to places like this and coming to this place indeed. And the young women are not the downtrodden hooker, the little uh, African-American drug addict. Junkie. Yeah. Junkie, 42nd Street. Uh-uh. They're educated people, and they're educated in a way that is not so prohibited, that is not so restrictive, that is not so Catholic guilt mentality. You can't do this. You can't do that. But you don't think that they were doing this as a— or do you believe they were doing this as some a form of sexual self-expression? Or were they people no. who were— They, they, were, they, wanted they were money. making money. They yeah. were paying the way through they college. They were being exploited. But, but the point was they weren't being exploited. They were exploiting the men like me. But I was both typical of the, of the male clientele. At the same time, as I said, I'm a bit of a split personality. I'm so curious. I'm never without having a sense— of what I'm doing, who I'm doing it with. I'm never fully engaged. You're doing it and you're watching yourself doing it at the same a, time. I'm a voyeur. Right. I am truly a voyeur. Right. So from the massage parlor near Bloomingdale's, where does it go from there? I go to other massage parlors, and I finally I go to a person who runs a massage parlor. Can I manage one? So I managed a massage parlor for six months. Does anybody in your life know you're doing this? I told my wife, of course. In fact, my wife was working at Random House. She's been a, she's right. still an editor. And of course, I know and your they, wife, they had, a, they had a Random House. So when you, house tell, was, when you tell a Random House editor who's your wife, she was I'm going to go, right, I'm going to go run a massage, not go to a massage yeah. parlor, or even if I got some kind of a well, Jones for a while but, where I'm going to go, before, I'm going to go run one. What did she say? You told well, her it was for a well, book. But don't forget, she had mafia gangsters in her house before. We of had, course. And we had Bodyguard. So he tells me she preferred the mafia gangsters though to the massage. Well, the way problem. mafia people more moral, but you know, but the they, point they're all was, just trying to make. A I buck. said I think there's a story here. Right. There was a story there, and I wanted her to come up. The Random House building then was 53rd and Third Avenue. My massage parlor was 54th Street and Third Avenue. I said, I said, come on up. I want you to meet some. But at that time, I knew the masseuses by name. I was taking the lunch. I was getting them to keep notes for me. I was doing— uh, You're running the place, so your days as a customer were over. That's right. That's right. But the only reason I know these people is because I was a customer. And I cultivated their association with me was somewhat— So once you worked—wait a second. Once you worked the massage parlor, right. you had the willpower to not— stick your straw in the punch bowl there. You, there were no more. No, that's right. I graduated, so so to speak, from being a consumer to being a management. <laughs> from I'm being a, a buyer to being a seller. Store. That's right. And I was keeping notes, and I was cultivating the girls, and I wanted to use their names. My idea for a book was to have it in a massage parlor. The two generations, the people like me, the customer, the male customer, sneaking in for a little, you know, getting getting your oil changed, Sure. In about 15 minutes for 30 bucks. And the women being of a different generation, very liberated to do this for money. 
and not feel guilty. They weren't they weren't the victim. Does it does it end with the it. massage parlor no. phase? The book goes on to what else? Go, but here's what happened. I finally got the characters that would give me their name, and then I invited my masseuse and her boyfriend home to dinner with my wife. And what happened was the boyfriend hit on my wife, who was cooking dinners, crazy, and the masseuse got mad. And my wife said, this is the end of it. I don't want to be associated with your research. But I lost the masseuse for my story. She got very angry. So then I went to California, and I heard about this place called Sandstone. It's a club of nudists. It's a beautiful mansion on the top of this canyon. And I was amazed, and I made my whole story there. I became a nudist. This guy that wears three-piece suits, son of a tailor, becomes a nudist. How long were you there? I was there six months. Six months. And I would come back and forth, meet my wife. Sometimes we'd meet in Chicago halfway. She completely knew what you were doing. Yeah. I didn't lie about it. And she wasn't happy, but she she understood this is the journey you're on. The marriage survived. When I was getting publicity, one time an article in New York Magazine, an evening in the nude with Gay Talese and all that, devastating piece. And my Devastating piece about you. Yeah. This crazy sex pervert. I was a pervert, really, for a period, maybe two or three years. But uh, I went through it, and I got a book out of it. One of the sad things about it, I took the book seriously, and it is a serious book, but I became known by that book primarily. And you think it overshadowed your other books? Oh, clearly. Right. Yeah. Did that upset you? It did then, but then in recent years, it has been recognized as a serious book. Right. Yeah. Do you think writing has changed for, for people? Like when you when you... When you look at Roth, when you look at your contemporaries, Cheever, Updike, and all these men, do you think that those people, uh, uh, people can have careers like them again now? Or is it the same as my business where you just can't have those careers anymore? They were of their time. I don't think it was ever easy. You can still do it. Now, what has hurt my line of work is the tape recorder. I don't use a tape recorder. I hang around with people. I'm not necessarily interested. You use shirt boards. I use shirt boards. And you round off the corner so they fit in your Try pocket. to have a little pack of you. I wish we, if we had television, <laughs> I have these things here. I'll leave some with you. But um, <clears throat> there are good writers. Now, you see most of the good writers now <clears throat> are in The New Yorker. But there are not enough magazines that will support writing that requires traveling. In order to write well, sometimes you have to experience on-site research. You have to travel. Right. You can't do it through Google. You have to get off your yeah, ass, yeah. get on the train, get on a plane, go somewhere. And that runs an expense account. So the cost of right. uh, But big magazines, the Vanity Fair will support you if you have a hot subject, whereas the New Yorker will support you. And you could just not necessarily be writing about a major movie star, but you can be writing about some ordinary person if it's a good enough story. But it's very hard. But it always was hard. So I, I don't think it's the end of an era. I still think that there are young people that care about writing and can write well and will have the patience and dedication to do the research. You have to do the research. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. You can read Gay Talese's story about retracing his steps across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma 50 years after the march along with his original account from 1965 at the New York Times website. I'm Alec Baldwin. 
and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Here's the Thing is produced by WNYC Radio in association with Stony Brook Southampton Graduate Arts.